Desert Adapted Lions of Namibia. This is the Wild Eye Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Jerry, I'm from Wild Eye, and in this episode I'm going to hand over to Andrew, and he has a chat with Felix Falat, who's the project coordinator for the Desert Lion Trust. Now, I'm just going to read a bit of a brief here so you know what uh, you can expect. The Namib is the only place on earth where a small population of desert-adapted lions occurs. Remarkably, these unique lions have survived along the Namib's skeleton coast for decades, but until 20 years ago they were merely phantoms, elusive and seldomly seen, and even believed to have gone extinct. Today there are around 100 desert-adapted lions, and this small population has adapted to its hostile environment in the most remarkable way. But there is continuous pressure on the desert lions. By far the largest threat to their survival is human-lion conflict. On the edges of the desert, rural communities farm with livestock, and when lions prey on them, the rural farmers retaliate by shooting or poisoning the big cats in an effort to protect their livelihood. Along with regular trophy hunting, this has led to a drastic decline in adult male lions in particular, leaving the already small population under threat. Now, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. I'm going to hand over to Andrew, and if you have any questions, get in touch with him. Enjoy. So, guys, welcome to this edition of the Wild Eye podcast. And today I'm catching up with the Desert Lion Trust. Um, Felix, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Andrew. I'm doing very fine, thanks. And you? I'm very good, thanks. So you're looking a lot warmer. You're sitting in Paris, um, but we're going to be talking about Namibia, and I'm based in South Africa. So we're really got a, we're covering the globe a little bit this morning. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Felix, so tell me a little bit about yourself and, and also the, the Desert Lion Trust. Yes, so my name is Felix Bala. I've been living in Namibia for the last 20 years. Uh, very quickly, when I got to Namibia, I really fell in love with the northwest of Namibia, which is a 50,000 square kilometer of, of, of pure wilderness, uh, without fences, without private land. And there is a magnificent and fascinating lion population living there, who is outside of National Park and uh, living with people. And this, this, these lions have developed very specific um, um, skills to survive in the desert that we'll be talking about. And I met with Dr. Philip Stender at that time. I was quite young. I was 22 years old. And uh, he made such an impact on my life and really taught me how to commit myself to, uh, to conservation. And uh, since then, I've been working with him and, uh, and now I am the coordinator of the project. Amazing. And um, so, I mean, obviously, the, the, the Desert Lion Trust has been established for some time. I know Dr. Philip Stander's work uh, spans more than 20 years, if I'm not mistaken, at the moment. Um, and uh, very much like his subjects, very nomadic and uh, covering huge distances and um, often times alone for a very long period of time in the field. Um, just share a little bit more about his work over the years and what he's been able to do um, on how he got into conservation of these lions or these desert adapted lions. Yes, Dr. Stander was, uh, was a ranger in Etosha. Uh, for for many years, up to 1998, and he heard about a ranger on the Scranton Coast National Park who photographed a lion male on the beach, and this had such an impact on him, and he had this this quest to look for this lion on the beach, which has which has never been seen or photographed or studied before, and he wanted to study these animals. So he went on a quest, and it took him more than two years before finding his first lion. <laughs> he, he had to fly 
uh, with a small plane uh, because the terrain was too rough and too big uh, with a car. So he flew and he walked and he tracked for two years before finding his first lion. And then his mission was to uh, make an history of these lions. They were likely coming from Etosha, survived all the private lands until they reached the desert where they found a safe haven, but also a very tough haven. And uh, the way they adapted to live to this hard con harsh condition really passionate him and um, and he and he made a whole history of the of this lion population and and that really is um, you know it's one part of the vanishing king vanishing king's book um, and the documentary so I mean for anyone to put it into perspective I've, I've just returned from Namibia and um, you know our first sighting of a desert adapted lion there came the following morning after arriving in camp after having heard of a confirmed sighting of a lioness who'd uh, been hunting along the coastline, had killed a seal, and um, you know, we, we then made the decision that we were going to get out very early the next morning, drive three hours from the Honup Skeleton Coast Camp, the Wilderness Safaris Camp, to get there. Um, and we caught a glimpse of her going over the ridge. Now, just to put that into perspective, you know, it took, you said, uh, Dr. Stunder, two years before he actually saw his lion out there. And, um, you know, I think just to, for, especially for my guests, they, the, the, the impact that it had seeing that line, and then, you know, we'll unpack a little bit more about what we saw in that Honab River Valley. But um, it's, it's incredible to think that someone spent two years before they even see this line. And for people who don't understand this landscape, it's very easy to say, well, you know, you're clearly looking in the wrong place. But these lines are very different. They're covering huge distances. They're living in much smaller family units and groups, often nomadic, especially from a male's perspective. And um, you, you talk about a harsh environment. I mean, coming, you know, if these lines did disperse from an Atosha kind of landscape, um, it really is hard to believe that anything can exist in these areas outside of the actual riverbed. And, and that's probably what makes this Honab River and some of the other river systems on that Namibian, the western side of the Namibian uh, country, um, so special and so uh, viable for lion populations to exist. Yes, correct. And also the terrain is very inaccessible. Like uh, you can drive uh, one small, there, there will be one road for for 20 square thousand uh, kilometers that, that you can cover. So there is mountains, there is uh, sand dunes, there is huge gravel plains that you cannot access. So these lions spend most of their time there. So to find them close to the road is already a miracle. So that's also adds a bit of challenge. Yeah, and, and you know, just coming in, and if I think about where our sightings were, if I take the the kind of the length of the Honab River that we traversed, we you know from the mouth on the coastline, which is where we f first saw one of our lines, um, coming back inland towards the floodplain, which is now dominated by the Statura after the recent heavy rains and everything's been washed down, and then a little bit further afield, even to the east of um, Honab Skeleton Coast Camp. Um, we saw another group of three lions there. So, you know, during our four-night stay, we pretty much saw all of the lion population. Well, that's changed slightly in the last couple of weeks. But the entire lion population of the Honab River, um, that's quite unusual, isn't it? <laughs> no, it is quite unusual, but there is also more lions now than there used to be 20 years ago. Yeah. And thanks to the conservation efforts of the Dr. Stender and the tolerance of the local communities, the population did grow mm -hmm. and the lions got used to cars and to people, because mm -hmm. the tourism involved in Namibia developed a lot. Uh, now they can, can make a difference between a tourism car and, uh, and, and a local car. And uh, before the lions will, will hide 
from any car or any lion movement because any human movement because they've been chased in the private farms and they got out of Etosha. So, so on one hand, they are more relaxed with car, yep. but they are they're also more lions. And and so let's you know that's a great intro and maybe we can just touch on some of the dynamics of the actual the Vanishing Kings book which you know is really it's an incredible story of what has unfolded in this landscape and you know we're saying that there are more lions there now than there were 20 years before which sounds you know fantastic but these lions are not out of the woods yet they still face their challenges. Um, just for those people who haven't necessarily got the Vanishing Kings book or watched the, the documentaries around this, can you sum up the, the journey of you know, those lions and how their lives unfolded and how Philip Stunder was actually there for the entire journey? Yes, I just want to come back quickly on the last, on the last topic because it's very important. Is yeah. that also one big difference with today between before is that people and guides and local people they know about the lions, they know about the prides, they know how many are and where. where? So yeah. this this makes it much easier to find them because they know them. Before it was not the case. Nobody knew about these lions. Only Philip were looking for them, and now there is such an. Uh, uh, empowerment and uh, feeling of ownership from the local people who know the lion that makes it easier to find them. That's quite important. That's a good thing. It, it is, but uh, let's put that into perspective. It's still a bit of a needle in the haystack as well. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Of but, course, uh, yes, yeah, Vanishing Kings. Kings. Yeah. Yes, Vanishing Kings was an incredible story, as you say. Uh, not only uh, there are very few lions in a big area, but these very few lions are often in conflict areas with local villages. It's again not a national park. Uh, some areas are organized in conservancies where they have a certain level of tolerance towards wildlife, but not infinite, because it's very expensive to live with lions. No surprise, uh, no one wants them in their backyard. And um, it happens that in lion population too, females are a bit more smart, are smarter than the males. So when there is a conflict, they are clever enough to leave the place before they get in touch, in contact with the local people. The males are too confident. They will hang around their prey, which can be a donkey, cattle, beef, sheep, which make them the first victim when the local people, after nine times, ten times, they, uh, they are fed up, nobody is helping them, so they are shooting the lion. So there is a decline in the male population. Usually it's one male for one female as a ratio. In this area, we have one male for three females. So the males have to change pride and move around. Nature, in response to that, is producing more males than females at birth. It's like human population. After the Second World War and the First World War, there was a decline in male population. Then there was an imbalance at birth. There was more males being born than, uh, than females. So we had this, um, these two lionesses who had five males, a litter of five males at the same time, which is exceptional. It really mm. doesn't happen. This was a way to balance the fact that there were less, not enough males in the lion population. Uh, Dr. Philip Stander was there from the beginning when these five lions were born. And uh, he got approached by a Netherlands filming company, uh, William Lee and Stin Camp, who wanted to, to record this, um, this story. And they followed the male from their birth up to their death. Uh, all of their death was linked to human-lion conflict. Um, before they, they died, they could uh, reproduce and pass on some pass on genes to the, to the lion pool population. And um, and it was the first image that really followed the real life of desert lion. They were lucky enough to film hunts. They were lucky enough to film lions on the beach. There has been two vanishing kings. 
And uh, these lions really become uh, iconic and make them known worldwide. And also we had a show in the country to show this movie to the villages that were living with these lions. Mm. And that, that's often a, an important part of conservation is to, you know, it sounds a little bit dramatic and, um, you know, to, to have this poster child of, you know, something for people to identify with. And this story of these five male lions being followed from birth all the way through to death, ultimately all um, at the hands of humans, has done, would you, would you agree that it's done an, an incredible amount to make the story of so many other lions who have met the same fate a little bit more tangible for people? They now understand it, whether they are local or whether they're international. It's helped to raise awareness around the challenges that are being faced by these lion populations, not just in Namibia, because human-wildlife conflict, I think, is probably one of the greatest challenges um, that conservation bodies are facing at the moment because you've got human livelihoods against the, the 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 wildlife and until there's ownership and i think namibia has done a great job in 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 the conservancies around bringing ownership to the people to a certain extent um you know there's always going to be that conflict um and the the story i mean that must have done a hell of a lot in raising the profile of both the project but also the 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 challenges that are being faced by the lion populations in this northwestern corner yes yes it did and it also uh, put some light on the challenges faced by the local people living with the lions mm -hmm. Uh, of course, it's not as attractive or sexy than a beautiful image of a lion on a dune. Uh, so people tend to identify more to the lion than to the people, but it also brought a perspective, a local perspective from the human and how not how uneasy it is to live uh, with lions. And this, uh, this I think, was, uh, was very important. So, you know, we say that there's more lions now than 20 years ago. What are the, the current threats and challenges and, and some of the mitigation measures that, that, uh, that are in place in this landscape to help both the people and the wildlife? Yes. Um, so there, was, there is more lions now. There is also less lions now than 10 years ago. Uh, we all go through natural uh, cycles according to the weather, which means a rainfall, which means grass, which means more prey for the lions. Um, up to 2015, we had a population of approximately 150 lions because there has been uh, some good rains, 27, 2011, 2013, so a lot of grass uh, for the prey. There has been a lot of efforts by the Conservancy to tolerate the lions. Uh, the tourism was developing, lions became an asset, an opportunity rather than a threat. Uh, so all the pieces of the puzzle um, brought a good scenario for the lion population to grow. Uh, and then from 2015, there has been a drought of seven years, up to this year, up to 2022. Mm -hmm. And the lion population could not feed on natural prey, so they had to go close to villages, they got skinny, they got hungry, and uh, they went into human-lion conflict. So the population went down to, we're not sure, 80 to 100 lions, which is a huge, uh, a huge impact. Um, and now that the rain are back, the prey are coming back slowly, uh, antelopes are reproducing again. So the land population will have more to, to eat and uh, be less into villages. And also at the same time, we had time to develop a lot of um, anticipation of the conflict. Uh, we have now 40 lion rangers on the ground patrolling on foot in the areas looking for tracks. We have uh, four cars of rapid response teams. Uh, we call them the human wildlife support team who are driving around and who have in the car a rover 
that will receive the lion position via satellite as soon as they violate a geofencing area. Just expand uh, on, on geofencing for those who are not familiar with the concept. Yes, so some lions are equipped with a collar, a GPS collar. Some will send the information of their position nine times a day to a satellite that goes back to a modem in Namibia. And we have virtually defined hotspot corridors. Uh, as soon as the lion enters these hotspot corridors, the satellite will pick up the lion position and send it to the lion rangers and to the human wildlife support team. So they can intervene on the scene and be there before the lion arrive. So it's an early warning detection system which is being used to benefit the community because when I posted some of the images, everyone said, oh, but you know, how come these lines are so difficult to, to find? They've got collars on. Well, number one, we're not running around with telemetry sets here. Um, and then, you know, this, the second thing was, why are they collared? And I think it's it's a great example of a twofold benefit. Number one, from a, a studying and research perspective, mapping out the movements and distribution. But secondly, taking that and, and then placing it into the, the, the benefit for the community to say, listen, we're going to set up geofencing, which will give us an early warning, early detection system, because that's half the battle, isn't it? It's just to say, listen, there are lines moving into this area. We're going to try and kind of discourage them from coming in. But please, can you make sure that you, you know, you've got your BOMA set up and, and we can expand on those initiatives now? But so that's a that's a huge step in the right direction. Yes, thank you. You are you are perfectly right, Andrew. First of all, the the, um, the lions, the collars are not made for tourism. They are made for research, as you say, point one, and also point B for conflict, for anticipating conflict. Eighty nine percent of the lion mortality in these areas are due to conflict. And um, and the local people, they have some kraals, uh, anti predator. Kraals, predator-proof kraals, and we have the early warning tower who will give a siren or will give light when the lion approach into the geofencing area. And especially, again, uh, the lion ranger and the human wildlife support team will receive a message as soon as the lion is entering the, in this area and they can go on the scene. Now, it's huge distances. They don't always get there in time, uh, but most of the time it is working and it is a huge uh, step uh, forward. So it's a multi-pronged approach. You've got the early warning system, but then, as you said, there's these lion-proof bomers, and there've been a, a range of mitigation measures that have tried in the past. I mean, flashing lights, um, you know, the the kind fireworks. of the fireworks, bear bangers, um, the lion-proof bomers, and from everything that I've experienced and engaged with, those seem to be the most effective. You know, com combined with good animal husbandry. Um, making sure that people are getting their line, their their cattle and their livestock back into these lion-proof bomers in enough time. It's often the sick, weaker individuals that are lagging behind as they're coming back to the crawl in the evening um, that fall prey to this. But the lion-proof bomers, just you know, is the is that a um, um, a project that let's say, for example, one of the points that we're going to chat about now is how can people get involved um, in supporting the work that you guys are doing? But you know, a lion-proof bomber for a community member, what does that mean to them? How much does that cost, and how effective is it at preventing conflict down the road? Yes. So there is one. There is not one solution that will solve it all. We we need a, a multi-tool uh, box of solution that that will make a difference altogether. Lion-proof quads alone 
will not make a huge difference if it, if it is not associated with lion rangers who will be the ambassador. Uh, this will not work if there is no collars on the lion. So it's like a multi-toolbox that we have to, um, to approach in that sense. Uh, in a very arid area, like this uh, Kunene land, it's difficult sometimes to get the cattle back every night at the same place because they, they need to, to, to graze to a much huge distances and they yeah. don't always come back to the same place. Uh, it's less hot at night for them to graze, so people have the tendency to let them out at night, which is the time when when lion hunts. So it's not the solution That's either, the, yeah. but it does help definitely a lot. Uh, the cost for a kraal with all the transports uh, from town and it's approximately fifty thousand rands. So five zero or one five? Five zero. Five, five zero. Fifty thousand rands. Uh, so putting that into dollar terms, we're looking at about three thousand dollars. Roughly, yes. you can approximately the same from uh, for a GPS satellite collar, um, and a bit maybe two thousand five hundred US dollar for a early warning system with a tower linked to the to the geofencing uh, system. Uh, so yes, we are looking for sponsors. We are looking for support. We are looking for technical uh, advice. Um, we are doing quite well because now it's no more uh, Philip Stander alone working on this. We are we are different stakeholders. We are working together as a team. It makes such a difference, and this is the future. That's amazing. I'm mean, just to, to expand on the satellite collars. I know the, you know there's the the cost of the actual collar and the the uplink time, and you've got you've got to pay for all of those services. Um, you know, so if someone wanted to donate in a little package a collar with let's say two years worth of satellite airtime and uploads and that sort of thing, what what does that come to? The, the same. We we can count to fifty to sixty thousand uh, rands. Um, and I think just you know, in, in terms as we we kind of bring this into land for for people who um, are sitting there and you know have not kind of they've got no idea about what this landscape looks like. They've had no idea that lines even exist in this part of the world. Um, all the, the good work that's been done. And this is often the challenge is there's such good work being done by so many people in these areas, which doesn't ever kind of really get into the mainstream media or see the light of day. And I think it's fantastic that, you know, this is a, a group effort. It's, it's beyond just an individual. Um, you know, what would you say to them about lions and the conservation of lion across the continent, not just in Namibia, because this really is, you know, we're looking at it at, at, a, at a very local scale, but this is a much bigger issue and a question that has been tried that people are trying to answer across the continent yes i think as you said in the beginning of the interview um living with wildlife is one of the biggest challenges that human uh, is facing right now that we understand that nature should not be put into a sphere like into a park fence without humans this can be useful but i think i don't think we all understand now that we are all linked and if we don't find a way to live together nature will collapse uh, which what what happens to the beast will soon happen to the man, and if we don't find a way and learn how to live with these beasts, beasts, uh, we, we will get in trouble our species ourselves. Um, not only this desert island population is inspiring by their beauty, roaming on the beach, hunting seals, things that have never been seen before, uh, going and going in sand dunes in a wonderful landscape. So it is very inspiring. It is also very useful because again, it's outside of national park most of the time. So if we manage to conserve this island population, it means that it's a sign of hope for humankind because it means that we can do much more into other parts of the world. It's a very nice study case um, because we control, we know about how many lions, we know how many villages, we have a good hand on the, 
on this scheme. And um, yes, if we manage to to keep on conserving this lion, it's an everyday challenge. It will never be one day. We can never say yes. Now it's being done. We leave these lions, but we are on the right path. And with support from the from the public, from the local communities, we can make it right. And we believe it's a it's a worthwhile project. I, I certainly think it is, and um, you know, like I say, it's it's certainly a, a bigger um, issue across the entire continent that so many areas are battling with in terms of human wildlife conflict and having communities living alongside. And I think it's a massive uh, feather in the cap to to be able to say that these are wild lion populations existing outside of private land, outside of protected areas, um, and you know, Namibia has has really done well. Um, to embrace that and to prioritize that, because I do believe that there have been changes to local government policy, which now also help to protect the lions in these areas. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we have technology on our side. We have um, the government, the local communities working together. Again, it's not a fairy tale. It's not an uh, everyday uh, easy story, but yeah. it is going on the right. Uh, it is going on the right direction, and we're making huge progress. And this is this is awesome to be involved. Excellent. Felix, um, I'm going to uh, share a couple of links in, um, at the notes of this podcast, but if people want to find out more about the good work that you are doing and would like to try and contribute in some way, shape or form to the good work that is being done by you and your team, how can they reach you and get hold of you? Yes, yeah, so I will send you the link of our website, uh, desertlion.info, our Facebook, Instagram page. Uh, we have a donation online system. Um, we know we we, we we prefer to spend time working on the ground than working on communication and uh, and laptops, but uh, we are making progress. And uh, thanks to people like you, it makes a huge difference for us. But um, yes, desertion.info, there is an online payment uh, solution and uh, social media. And if there was uh, someone that really wanted to get involved with a, um, a specific project, what are, what are the things that are on your cards right now that would make a huge difference? Um, you know, whether it's salaries for rangers on the ground, whether it's equipment and tools, because often the smallest amount of money can make a huge difference. So what's, uh, what are your greatest needs at the moment? So this year, our priority number one is to color unknown prides of lions. So we are having a survey and uh, we are putting a at least one color on the patriarch or the matriarch of the lion pride and uh, this has a quite expensive running cost so if people want to get involved into a lion coloring campaign we have four running this year we have done two already they will find some uh, reports on our um, website and social media and uh, to help us with the running cost of the coloring campaign will be a huge help and to help us on the running cost of the organization because people we, I do understand that for people it's easier to sponsor a color than to sponsor running cost, but we also need some money to pay some fuel, to pay some to pay some 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 salaries on the ground. Um, so this will be highly welcome. Fantastic. I'll make note of that as well. Felix, thank you so much for the time and for the good work that you and your team are doing. I really do appreciate it. Guys, there you have it, desertlion.info. And at the bottom of this podcast, we will have some links to the specific sites and to the donation page. And um, yeah, Felix, we will be in touch. Um, I think we can do something around this lion collaring campaign and uh, try and help um, raise some additional funding to just make that project uh, run a little bit easier and know that uh, the costs of those collars are covered. But thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, for your interest, for your support. We also really appreciate it. You made some wonderful pictures. We will give them good promotion and uh, hopefully we can work together some more. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.